Good afternoon. I'm Lawrence Cornfield with the Department of Building Inspection, and we are on the fifth year, approaching the sixth year of our brown bag lunch series here at the Department of Building Inspection, where we talk about topics related to construction in San Francisco. And we invite you to join us on the third Thursday of every month here at the Building Department. Uh, we have an exciting lineup of shows this year, and one of them today is going to be really exciting because we have a terrific guest today, Mr. Woody LeBounty. And Thank welcome. you. Uh, Woody is uh, founder of the Outside Lands, is that right? Woody? The Western Neighborhoods Project. Western Neighborhoods Project. And we'll talk more about that. Actually. Excellent. And the author of a recently uh, published book, which I have a copy of, and it's really fascinating and wonderful. And he's going to talk about Carville by the Sea today. We'll look at sh slides, and uh, he'll tell us about the history of the outer lands, previously uninhabitable area of the city, so the old maps say. Yep. And uh, we will invite your questions. So please, uh, you in the audience, if you have questions, just let us know, and Woody can help. So thank you, Woody, for being here. Thank you. So we're going to talk a little bit about Carville by the Sea today. And Carville was a very unique community out on the edge of San Francisco. Uh, as you can see by this slide, it was made up of old streetcars and horse cars that people used for residences, bars, restaurants, clubhouses. And it had its peak in the 1890s, around the turn of the century. I should mention that you see this is a color shot we don't, none of these photos were originally colorized. I essentially put color in there for the book just to make it a little pop a little bit, so don't be fooled. Before we get started, I'd like to talk about the organization that I helped found about 10 years ago, the Western Neighborhoods Project, which is a nonprofit dedicated to the history of Western San Francisco. And we have a very popular website, outsidelands.org, where we have old photos, stories, over 15,000 messages put up by people remembering their time in the Richmond District, the Sunset District, Lake Merced area, west of Twin Peaks. So visit that. You'll find lots of interesting history there, including some info on Carville. The other thing I'd like to make you aware of is I couldn't fit everything into a book, so I decided to have a little companion website so that if there's new things that come up, if there's... Uh, Corrections, God forbid. Uh, it'll show up on this website. Old photos that I maybe couldn't fit in. So visit that if you can. And that's carvillebook.com. How do we start with Carville? Well, we start with the building material, essentially. How does Carville get started? It starts with uh, when old forms of public transportation become obsolete. Now, the earliest forms of public transportation were omnibuses, which were really large coaches pulled by horses. But in the 1860s, people came up with a new idea, which was the horse car. And a horse car was essentially just a little car that horses could pull, but it used rails on the ground. Rails reduced traction, so horses could pull larger loads. Uh, horse cars really started taking over all across the United States in the 1860s, but they had some drawbacks, as you might be able to imagine. Can anybody think of something that could be a bit of a problem with horses pulling cars. Yes, well, for one thing, horses were living animals and they could get sick. So some industries, uh, some companies lost thousands of horses to disease, which was just terrible for business. The other thing is a horse can drop up to 10 pounds of fecal matter on the street every day. 
So you're talking about up and down Market Street, tons of these cars going back and forth every day. It was just a public uh, nuisance, you might say, and perhaps a health hazard. So people were very excited to try to find new forms of transportation technology, and they came up with one we're all familiar with, the cable car. So here on the left, you'll see a cable car next to a horse car on the right. Cable car was a great leap forward because it cut the horses out of the equation. Uh, cable cars were a lot more energy efficient. Uh, they were very popular in cities all across the United States, including Chicago, and they really took over in San Francisco because cable cars could climb hills where horses couldn't, opening up development in parts of the city where before there hadn't been any. But cable cars had their drawbacks too. A cable car can only go nine miles an hour. It goes as fast as the cable under the street pulling it. Cable cars have a hard time going backwards, changing direction, investing in the infrastructure to put the cable in the street is very costly, so you have a lot of upfront costs. And if a company wanted to run just one cable car, they had to start up the powerhouse to get the cable running through the street, so it had energy efficiency issues as well. This is an electric streetcar. That was the new, modern, exciting form of transportation, and it was very energy efficient. Each streetcar only used enough energy from the wires that it needed. It didn't have to run a powerhouse. Uh, people were a little scared of them at first. The technology was a little uh, haywire in the beginning. They, went, they could go very fast. They had variable speeds, but people were, thought they were a little too dangerous. But eventually, trolley cars started taking over. And in the early 1890s, the Market Street Railway Company started buying up little transit companies all across the city. And wherever they could, they tried to replace the old forms of technology, horse cars and cable cars, with these cheaper, more energy efficient electric trolley cars. The question was, what to do with all the old cars? They had an idea. They took an ad out in the paper. They said the Market Street Railway had all these old cars. You could buy one without seats for $10 or with seats for $20. And they had some suggestions of what people could do with the old horse cars and cable cars. They could be used for newsstands, fruit stands, lunch stands, offices, summer houses, children's playhouses, poultry houses, tool houses, coal sheds, wood sheds, conservatories, and polling booths, etc. <laughs> and it really is a testament to the Market Street Railway's imagination that these cars essentially got used for all of these uh, different purposes. Here's a shoemaker in Oakland, and he opened up his little cobbler shop in an old horse car in his backyard, and he locked it up at night with a long nail going through a hasp because he said, who's going to steal old shoes? A little bit more dramatic, a man named James McNeil took four old horse cars and put them on a pontoon to make a houseboat near Belvedere. He called it the Nautilus, and he rented it out to people, tricked it all up the inside for uh, rich people to come have a little summer vacation in a very novel setting. And a watchmaker, there was a realtor out in Noe Valley, Jacob Heyman, who used a car as a real estate office, and we'll talk more about him in a second. Uh, Charles Stahl took three and put them out in the sun dunes of the Sunset District, and, or the sand dunes of the Sunset District, created a little house out there. And this guy over here on the bottom left, uh, Charles Daly opened a place called the Annex, and he really called it a coffee saloon. You might call it sort of a cafe of its time. Does anybody here know where the Sunset District is? Oh, a couple of people, good. <laughs> Over there. Well, on the map, you can see the Sunset District is this big block south of Golden Gate Park, this big grid pattern. It's very large. It's one of the largest districts in San Francisco. And this map, this grid pattern, was actually created way back in the 1860s with the streets going... Uh, 
crossing each other at right angles. We have numbered streets and lettered streets. But even though this map was created in the 1860s, if you went out to the Sunset District as late as the 1890s, you wouldn't see these nice ordered grid streets. What you would see is something like this. The Sunset District was almost completely sand dunes with little patches of scrub here or there, a hollow. It was uh, thought to be uninhabitable by a lot of people, and some maps actually put that on the map, called the Great Sand Waste or the Great Sand Bank. It was cold and it was foggy. There was no infrastructure out there, of course, in the 1890s, no gas, no real good transportation, no sidewalks. People didn't want to live out there. However, what it did have is a steam train line that ran out Lincoln Way to the beach. And it was basically built to bring picnickers, people who wanted to get away for the weekend, to go to the beach to picnic on a Sunday. And right out here at the end, the end of the Sunset District, right up in the northwest corner, is where Carville gets its start, on a little strip of land, a little block that uh, Mayor Adolf Sutro, he was mayor at the time, owned. And that's where Colonel Daly put up his little coffee saloon using that old car, and that's where Carville really takes off. So who's responsible for Carville? We said Adolf Sutro. He's the guy on the right there. He was the mayor of San Francisco at the time. Very wealthy landowner, owned at one point, up, I think they say at one-twelfth of San Francisco in land. Most of it was in the west side of the city. Robert Fitzgerald was called the king of Carville. He was an early settler to Carville. Jacob Heyman, that realtor who was out in Noe Valley, he started being called the father of Carville, and we'll see why in a second. And this guy on the left, Colonel Daly, was often called the pioneer father of Carville, and he really gets a lot of the credit. Here's Colonel Daly in his little shed. He was sort of a, how do we describe him? He's sort of an 1890s bohemian, a bit of a hermit. He supposedly fought in the Civil War, but most importantly, he was a friend of Adolf Sutro's. And Sutro had an old real estate shack right out there at the end of the streetcar line in the northwest corner of the sunset. And he let Colonel Daly squat in there, essentially. Now, Daly had no gas, no electricity, no utilities. It was just a shed out in the sand dunes. And he went out every morning, walked along the beach, and whatever washed up, he brought back to his little shed and created quite a large little compound of old bottles, uh, shoes, anything that washed up. There was a shipwreck provided a bunch of lumber, and he made a little sleeping uh, loft in his little cabin. And for a while there, he had a wife. Uh, she didn't wash up in the waves, <laughs> but she did eventually wash out. She couldn't handle cooking out in the sand dunes every night, creating a fire. So she left him sometime in the late 1890s. But Daly took one of those cars we were talking about that Sutro provided for him and opened this little coffee saloon where he sold sandwiches and donuts and little sundry items to the picnickers who came out to the beach on the weekends. And soon other people, they, they kind of were charmed by this little old horse car that was being used as a store, and they asked Sutro if it was possible that they could rent a car on his land. And Sutro said, okay, five bucks a month, you could have a little car clubhouse out there in that little strip of land that Sutro owned at the beach. And so here we have, you see off in the distance, that white shed, that's Colonel Daly's shack. The little car in the distance in the middle is his coffee saloon, and this red car is one of the first cottages that was rented by a bunch of lady bicyclists. You like the lady bicyclists, huh? <laughs> Bicycling was a raging fad in the 1890s. 
all over the United States, newspapers and magazines were aghast about it. They were just talking about it back and forth. Was it healthy? Was it unhealthy? Uh, are the bicyclists taking over the roads? Are they hazards to public uh, health and traffic? And most importantly, everybody was very excited about the idea that women were bicycling. They, they were actually worried that perhaps women might perspire if they bicycled and that that was an unhealthy and unfeminine thing. And a lot of women were wearing bloomers, which were these sort of blousy trousers to help them bicycle. And that was thought to be quite scandalous. But the Falcons, the Lady Falcons, they didn't care. They were a group of seven married women who went bicycling in Golden Gate Park, and they rented one of these horse cars as a clubhouse. They would finish their ride. They would go rest in the long seats there in the clubhouse, and they started having dinner parties there. It became quite a fashionable thing, and they really sort of tricked it out with all the Victorian filigree they could come up with, uh, Japanese fans and curtains and cushions, and it just became sort of a fashionable bohemian thing to do that other people took up the idea, rented these clubhouses from Sutro, and many of them were, there were superior court judges, they were clerks, they were some pretty upscale people who were renting these. It wasn't their primary residence, it was sort of a summer cottage getaway or a weekend getaway. By 1898, there's about seven of these cars all lined up on the great highway, and Again, these people are renting from Sutro, so they can't do too much to the cars. I mean, they can kind of fix up the inside, but the outside pretty much has to stay the same. So they really do look like old horse cars or street cars out on the Great Highway. This car in the center was Mrs. Gunn's. It was sort of a, a, a tea house. Mrs. Gunn ran a restaurant there in one of the old cars with Sutro's permission, and she was sort of like... Um, Sort of like the soup Nazi on Seinfeld. She kind of served you if she liked you. If she didn't like your face, you were out and you were banned from the place for life. Uh, but she was an irascible character that everybody kind of had a soft spot for. And she was there all the way until the 20s when she uh, passed away. Now, this, the other thing that's kind of funny is, remember, this is all empty sand dunes we're talking about with like seven or eight cars out there. Well, it wasn't because realtors weren't trying to sell the land. Everybody thought San Francisco would expand eventually. And all these real estate guys were out there trying to sell lots, and nobody was buying. It was cold, it was foggy, there was no good transportation. It, it just wasn't a good buy. But then, one of these real estate guys, who owned a couple of blocks just south of Sutro, saw these cars lining up and saw the popularity of them, and he decided, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So he made a little deal. He bought 50 old cars, dragged them out to his land just south of Sutro in the sand dunes, and he said, if you buy a lot from me, $35 up front, $750 a month, I'll toss in two cars so you can pretty much move in today. It's like a starter home. And to kind of help get attention to the whole thing, he built what he called uh, novel seaside cottages. So this is one of his novel seaside cottages where he basically elevated these cars to a second story. So here's one in construction. And off on the right there is his little real estate office and another old car. And Jacob Heyman, this guy, he really struck gold because he dug in the sand 
looking for water, and he hit the aquifer. So suddenly you had fresh water out there. You could actually get water, and that was a big deal. Now you could perhaps even live out there year-round. And this is Haman's Land, just south of Sutro's. And you can see the cars are all lined up waiting for buyers, essentially. And in the background, we've got some of these novel seaside cottages. And he left the cars exposed on purpose. It was a publicity thing. You, you might come out, and you'd be picnicking or walking along the great highway on the weekend. And you go, what the heck is that thing? And you go over, and you can say, buy a lot, $35, two cars, can't miss. So this is that same view just a few months later. We're talking about mid-1899 now. And you can see the cars are all starting to be put to, uh, put to use in buildings. And we come up with all these different patterns. This car on the left here is uh, two cars end-to-end -end with a sort of connecting vestibule. It's kind of an eye pattern. So you could have a cabin in one car or a little compartment in one car. The other car might be your mother-in-law. And you can meet in the middle in that sort of connecting section for breakfast. And they did similar things. They put like four in a cross with a connecting part in the middle. And you can see they're, these are not exactly ADA accessible. I mean, they're up here on these platforms above the sand dunes. And you can probably guess why. Or if you can't, I'll give you another view here. This is the same view pretty much. So you can see that car it's up, up above the sand dunes. But here it's getting sort of buried. The sand would shift. And it would blow around, and they talked about if you lived in a car house, how you might get up in the morning, open your door, and there'd be a three-foot drop. Or if you had the, made the mistake of having your door open out, you might not be able to get out because the sand had billowed up against your door in the night. So they'd build these car houses up on stilts just to kind of keep them above the sand and above the fray. This idea of buying your own lot and getting your cars really booms. Jacob Heyman hits it, the jackpot. People, everybody wants to buy their own car house now. Uh, on Sutro's land, you can only rent it, but now the creative carpenter really starts emerging in people. They can take these cars, they can add additions, they can put them up in the air. This is a uh, George McCallum's car house. He was a gardener in Golden Gate Park. This is out on the Great Highway. And you can see he just put one car on the end as sort of a little sunroom or viewing uh, area facing the ocean. A lot of cars were used as rentals. These are little rental cabins where they would basically just put two together and the real estate guys who owned lots out there could rent them to people for the weekend or the summer. And you had millionaires coming from all over the place to actually rent a car to kind of rough it in the old uh, car out at the beach because it was just a novel, faddish thing to do in the 1890s. Um, Woody, I was wondering, uh, you said they dragged them out. Uh, I know the maps from that area, and basically the Lincoln Street line is the most southern railway for the city at that time. So everything south of that is, you're telling me, is sand dunes. and. We know no walking sand dunes. How did we drag them out? Did we drag them out on Lincoln with horses, or we were able to put on some rails? It's a good number of bodies that they've dragged out there when you say 50 or 100. So I'm wondering about that. Yeah, it's a good question I was really struggling with because, well, for one thing, the, the Golden Gate Park, the roads in there, the park commissioners were very uh, jealous about. They didn't want anybody to use the Golden Gate Park roads for commerce or for transporting things. They wanted to keep it for recreation. So for a long time, I thought maybe they used that streetcar line on Lincoln Way, used the rail, somehow put the cars on bed, you know, some kind of flatbed rail thing, brought them out to the edge of where Carville would be and dragged them across the sand, perhaps on sleds or something. It turns out I, I finally came across what Heyman did in, in an article. He actually somehow talked the commissioners into using the Golden Gate Park roads. So 
he took the, remember the apparatus, most of the machinery is taken out of these cars, which makes them a lot lighter. They're mostly wood at this point. They're probably brought out, pulled by horses through Golden Gate Park roads. And then in 1892, the Great Highway sort of gets improved. So he could go down a couple of blocks in the Great Highway. Then he's only got maybe half a block of sand dunes to drag all these cars onto his land. Now, once you get these cars kind of sitting in the sand dunes and somebody buys a lot three blocks away, I don't know exactly. Again, I think they must have used some combination of sleds, horses, block and tackle, you know. And we're not exactly sure. But maybe only a few blocks instead of the great distance across the west. Right. They can maybe just creep little by little to grow. And most of Carville was centered in about two or three block radius. So people start getting very excited about the idea of what they can do with these old cars. And uh, this was a very famous sort of bed and breakfast of the 1890s called uh, Vista Del Mar, run by a Mrs. Patriarch. And she uh, had these old North Beach and Mission horse cars that she essentially left revealed on the upper floor and she put pillows and hammocks up there so guests could stay up and look at the ocean from the car up above and this house sort of became like the Winchester mystery house it kept growing and growing and having more additions and more cars uh, annexed onto it so it, at one point it has up to 10 cars and you can see they're using um, old dash signs or destination signs for fencing actually here in the front so everything gets recycled in Carville. Later, Mrs. Patriarch's uh, bed and breakfast becomes an Episcopal church called St. Andrew's by the Sea. So here it is in that incarnation, and in the back there's a shed there, that's the Sunday school, it says. And you can see the fence, the sand all pushed up against it. I mean, it was necessary to sort of fight the sand and keep it at bay, or you'd get deluged. That's another pretty famous house on the Great Highway. It looks sort of like a mechanistic Mayan temple or something. It, it kept being boxy and then growing. It's in the center here. It was made of about four or five cars, actually. And you can see people had different takes on it. Some people like to keep their cars very exposed and open, kind of have that old Sutro land quality to it so people could see it was a car. And others really rushed to sort of shingle over or hide the cars inside the architecture. This is uh, Roy Andrus's house on 48th Avenue, and you see on the left he has two cars, and, and then he builds a more conventional little cabin on the right. Again, it was sort of like you're showing off the cars. Uh, you don't necessarily need them. You could build a very small little cabin. The stars are made up, by the way. I just put those in. <laughs> so Carville becomes... Like we said, we had these rich people. We had millionaires coming down from Sacramento to rent an old horse car. It becomes a very fashionable, sort of trendy thing to do. The Gilded Age of the 1880s was passed. We were sort of in a depression in the 1890s. And so it was kind of, it, it kind of looked good if you were a rich person to say, oh, we're roughing it this year in cars down at the beach. And it also drew a bunch of artists and writers and other people who were attracted to the romantic idea of cars out in the sand dunes. Some of the people who came to Carville, uh, Xavier Martinez, the California painter, he rented an old car as a studio out there at the beach. And that picture in the background here is um, uh, one of his paintings. Maisie Griswold was an associate editor at Sunset Magazine and a big fan of Carville, really promoted it. Another person, Jack London, the writer, came out and partied in Carville in an old car a doctor friend of his rented. George Sterling, the poet who wrote The Cool Gray City of Love, came out to Carville a lot. 
And this guy really loved it. Gillette Burgess was a, a humorist, a writer. He really wanted to be known as a serious novelist, but he was better known for his children's books and for writing nonsense verse. He wrote The Purple Cow. I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one, but I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. You heard of that one? No. It's an old San Francisco one. But he got so sick of it. it was funny. I have it written down here. Let me see. He hated people reciting that back to him, so he wrote, Ah, yes, I wrote the purple cow. I'm sorry now I wrote it. But I can tell you anyhow, I'll kill you if you quote it. <laughs> and uh, Gillette, he, he used Carville in two of his novels, uh, scenes and characters. One, it's a romantic, a guy rents one out there and kind of brings his dates out there for a little romantic uh, rendezvous. And another one where an old uh, car conductor rents a car and it comes to life. You have to read more in his books. And other artists and musicians, this car on the left, number one, is was called La Boheme, and it was rented in the Sutro section by musicians who, when they finished their work downtown in the cafes and restaurants and the clubs and the theaters, would go out to Carville to this clubhouse in the night and drink and go skinny dipping in the surf and raise all sort of ruckus. This little hill in front of them they called Mount Diablo. <laughs> They each had their own little locker that was locked up where they kept their liquors so they didn't have to share with each other. And less bohemian wildness, there, this is a woman's euchre club, a card-playing club on the Great Highway. They called their car Water Wild. Carville wasn't only out there in the outer sunset. Uh, other little communities birded up here and there, uh, all the way across the United States, actually. But after the earthquake and fire, 1906 earthquake and fire, there... It was a little sister community, you might call, called Carzonia. And this was a, a Dr. Charles Cross set up 10 old cable cars uh, on California Street, between California and Cornwall Street, 5th Avenue and 4th Avenue in the Richmond District. And he assured the neighbors, who were very aghast at the idea of these old cable cars being set up, that, that they would be very tasteful and artistic. And essentially, yeah, it was like one room with a little bathroom attached made of old cable cars. Uh, he, you know, Dr. Cross thought he was hitting on something because there were tons, hundreds of thousands of people who were homeless looking for new places to live in the aftermath of the earthquake and fire. So he thought, why not use these old cable cars? Carzonia only lasted about 10 or 12 years, though. I guess it wasn't a big hit. And he built a more conventional apartment building after that to replace it. And it really was the 1906 earthquake and fire that sort of spells the end of Carville. Because you have these hundreds of thousands of people looking for new homes, suddenly displaced. Now they might listen to these real estate men who say, look, I got you were renting before in the mission. You don't want to live there. I've got this lot out here, sand dune, but it's 100 bucks. You know, you could build a house here for cheap. So suddenly more conventional houses start being built around Carville. And some of the stores that had kind of uh, started out there in Carville are used by the neighbors. And you start seeing that these conventional homes start pushing out the cars. So we have these cars in the Great Highway, but behind we have these more straightforward, real houses. And here it is again. They're sort of closing in on it. And writers bemoaned that the old planks that were used between Houses and cars were now being replaced by real sidewalks. Electricity actually comes out pretty quick. The septic tanks, the windmills get replaced by real plumbing. The neighbors, they don't want Carville anymore. They don't want these bohemian musicians skinny dipping and getting drunk at night 
these sort of petting parties that are happening that the young men are hosting in the cars. They want real schools, real firehouses. They want to be known as a real community. And so an improvement group called the Oceanside Improvement Group decided that they would get rid of Carville. And they, they hosted an event on July 4th of 1913. They called it Burning the Car Out of Carville which was a pretty straightforward name. <laughs> they asked Sutro's heirs if they could take um, the old cars that he had been renting in that original Carville plot and make a big bonfire out of them. And she said, sure. And so they took all the cars, they put them in a big, a big pile, and it was July 4th, so they bought some fireworks and tossed them in with the fire. Um, but they were trying to announce they were a new neighborhood. They didn't want to be called Carville anymore. They wanted to be called Oceanside, which sounded a lot more... Romantic, and so here we looked at that picture. You know, there's a couple of car houses still around in the early 1910s, but just 15 years later, it really starts filling in the stucco homes we think about in the Sunset District that the merchant builders start building. Those row houses really start taking over in the 20s and 30s, and soon people start forgetting that Carville was ever there. The cars are kind of that do remain are kind of derelict. They're, they've been in the elements for 20 years. They're really worn down. Mostly they're rented to people who are too poor to rent other places. So instead of these judges and lawyers and doctors renting cars, you have people really on the fringes of society who are using them, which doesn't help the whole reputation of Carville or these cars with the neighbors. See, they're starting to get kind of beat up. This is by 1925. And a lot of cars, they get pushed back in the backyards of house of lots. So somebody might build a conventional house, then they just push their old car house in the backyard. This was actually on 48th Avenue in the backyard. It's an old cable car house. And the guy who lived there in the early 60s, um, he had a boyfriend named Cliff, and they painted it yellow. And then when he got a new boyfriend named Dennis, they painted it red to get rid of Cliff. <laughs> But it was a beautiful little car. He, he still remembers it. And uh, it disappeared, we think, sometime in the 70s they got rid of it. But this is what keeps my hopes up. This actually isn't in Carville. This is in the Richmond District on 9th Avenue. People say, are there any car houses left? Or are they all gone? Have they all disappeared? Well, this is a good example of how one can surprise you. This is on 9th Avenue in the parking lot behind the old Coliseum Theater. Now, before that parking lot was put there, the city was looking for houses, looking for spaces near merchant corridors to create these little parking lots. And they bought this house from a Mrs. Suggs because they wanted to tear it down and put the parking lot in. And when they started tearing the house down, they realized that this kind of boring house was made up of three old cable car trailers on the second floor. And even the granddaughter who played in the house didn't know that it was made of cable cars. It would spin so hidden behind the stucco and lathing inside. So these little things can surprise you. Now look at this house. This is in the rear of a lot on the Great Highway. You can't really see it from the street. You have to kind of get up on the berm. But if you looked at the front of it, you wouldn't think there was anything special about it. It's essentially a shingled box. But if you got around to the back of it, you'll see it's actually made of two cable cars and a horse car on the second floor. This is how it's sort of put together. Again, we're looking at the backyard here. Two cable cars are put together, and they basically removed a wall from each to make one large room, the living room. And then the horse car is still complete as a bedroom off to the side. This is perhaps the last greatest Carville house left. It's really a neat place. 
So with the cable cars, you know, you have that little pop-up roof in the middle. What they did, so you wouldn't have to duck, is they removed that wall and they pushed up the side roof to sort of make this dome feeling inside. And the seats are original. They're still in there. The little ventilator windows. The woodwork is all in place. It's just really kind of a neat thing. I'd love to live there, but I can't afford it. <laughs> and if you get up into the attic, you can actually see the crowns of the cable cars still show. It's just an amazing place. So that's my hope that, you know, this book I wrote, this story gets out. We're on SFGovTV. Somebody will say, I have a cable car house. Nobody asked me. You know, come take a look at it. Because right now we're down to like one or two, maybe, that are still around. When we're talking about there used to be hundreds. We're essentially um, into a generation of tearing them down and no more construction, uh, complete replacement. Yeah, and in the 1910s, about the mid 1913, 1914, they really start pushing to get rid of them. And when that really open block that Sutro rented, and that right in the edge of the sunset, when that got cleared out, it really eliminated the visibility of Carville because we talk about a whole block of car houses that were still there. When that gets replaced by apartment buildings, suddenly you just have a car house here, one there, just where people haven't taken the time to tear it out or build a conventional home. And in the 20s and 30s, things were booming uh, house building wise out there. So if you have a little empty lot that has an old car house on it, it you'd be stupid not to build you know, a little stucco house there and make a quick buck. So. By the 20s, they're mostly gone. There's just a couple of here and there. So, Woody, sometimes um, the Muni Railroad seems to be finding old cars and rebuilding them. Have they rebuilt any of these? Are any of these actually rebuilt and used again? Some of them they have saved because they popped up now and then. And the owner, like those ones on Ninth Avenue, those three cable car trailers, they were actually saved by Ed Zielinski, who took them and donated them to the Maritime Museum. And I think one still sits in a, a, a Muni warehouse waiting for somebody to do something with it. But other old cars have been rescued and taken to parks where they've been restored. There's one down in San Jose in Kelly Park. It's an old horse car that was restored and actually runs around on the weekends. So, How were they, uh, they heated and, and maintained? There was a wide variety of temperatures you could get in an old car because... On the one hand, you're out in this foggy neighborhood. There's not much insulation, really. On the other hand, you've got 30 windows that, in the sunshine in the day, could just make the place broiling. And at night, all those windows let in the cold. So they advised people to put up curtains, and they'd have little oil lamps, and they had coal stoves later, little oil coal stoves. But it was a challenge. It was sort of part of the romance, I think. It's like camping. How long did the fad last? The height of it, and this all really get, takes off around 1897, 1898. The height of it is really the turn of the century. 1900, we're talking about 200 cars. Uh, after the earthquake in 1906, that's when it starts declining a little bit because more conventional houses start taking over and more people live permanently year-round. They're not just using it as a party pad. So it's really after the quake that it starts declining a bit. Lawrence, is there a DBI record as cable cars were moved to a site that there would be a city record and they would be platted? You know, it's funny, that last car house we were taught, we showed here, it actually, there is a permit 
that's here at the city and that you can look up and it says to take two cable cars and raise them up from 1908. But I, it, I guess it's the earthquake, really, that kind of takes out a lot of those records. So if you look for stuff that was before the earthquake, you often don't have a permit or an application or any kind of record that you can look at. And then, yeah, you're right. Then it goes down to some of these pictures I found by basically finding the names of people who lived in Carville and then tracking down their descendants and asking, do you have anything? And I hit gold with a couple of people who said, yeah, we've got lots of old photos and stories, but it takes a lot of legwork. It's not like you can walk into a city department and just get that info. Woody, I know you actively solicit uh, people to submit photographs and history and stories. They have a wonderful newsletter. Uh, what is the newsletter called? Well, it's just our... Our organizational newsletter, newsletter yeah. <laughs> and it has it, it on the. It also has in it sort of a mystery photograph that maybe somebody submitted. Can you imagine where this is? Tell us where it is. But also soliciting these histories of photographs and, and recollections. And that's what you know, like it's history groups and like we're a history group for the west side of town. So we interview old timers and we get donations of photographs and stories. And there's other groups like that throughout the city. It's really up to a lot of volunteers and people who care about the neighborhood to track this stuff down. So a question about house moving. House moving used to be very common in San Francisco, and I, I think you once were looking at that as well. Is that right? Well, well, we saved some earthquake shacks, and Lawrence helped us get the permit to move them. And we pulled out the ledger of, you know, it was like the official city ledger of moving houses. And, like, there were tons of them. And then, a, I don't know, at some point it just kind of petered out, and then somebody moves a house, like, once every 15 years now. So we actually, in our digital age issue house moving permits once every couple of years and I pull out this little book it's got a piece of carbon paper in it and you put the carbon in and you write you know house moving permit number you know 36 and you say from here to there we charge a fee a very low fee it's really right out of the you know turn of the century before yeah I thought and, you guys should wear green visors when you right. do that because it has that sort of dusty uh, right. old school feeling but we, we actually we maintain that. I tried to maintain this little book, and we still do it that way. Would uh, the post-earthquake uh, uh, installation of building codes and building requirements have impacted um, Carville to expand? And ultimately, was that part of the demise? Is our um, desire and need to have structures that were uh, earthquake safe and fire safe? Uh, and did that have an impact on it? Yes. Well, it seemed more that there were health issues. They were really not happy with the plumbing out in Carville. Uh, yeah, they were. It, that shows up a lot more than anybody worried about um, building integrity or anything. The the thing that comes up a little later, and we talked a little bit about these earthquake refugee cottages. After the 1906 earthquake, uh, the Relief Corporation that was tending to all these refugees built thousands of these small little redwood cottages for the refugees. And then when the camps closed after a year, people could take the cottages to these empty lots and set them up. There was a far bigger outcry about whether those were appropriate and what the code would be because they, most of them weren't put on foundations. They were just dragged out to empty lots. They were combined together. Sometimes they were lifted up off the ground even. So you find articles about that far more often than you find anybody having a problem with these cars, which were actually pretty sturdy. We're talking about they're used as public transportation all the time. They're made of some pretty uh, hefty materials. So people weren't too worried about them. Um, at least I, it doesn't come up in the historical record. Are, do we have any left, and how are we recognizing and preserving them? 
Well, there's that one left that's great that we saw the interior of, and that is not a city landmark. The guy who owns it is very uh, aware of its significance as maybe the last and best example of a Carville house. He really wants to take care of it. I don't know if he would go forward with any kind of landmark designation just because, like a lot of homeowners, he doesn't want to be at all boxed in with what he can do, but... Um, but that's kind of where we are. I think it is a landmark, and if anything had to come up, I would definitely nominate it as one. The other examples of Carville houses, there's one on 47th Avenue where the cars have been basically removed, and all you've really got left is perhaps uh, the floors of a couple of cars. Um, it, was great. it was a great example until, I guess, the late 50s, and then whoever bought the house decided to take out the, most of the woodwork. But th that might be the only one is the one on Great Highway. You mentioned one of the problems was with plumbing with these Carville homes. I was wondering at what point in history did outhouses become illegal in San Francisco? Well, I'm not sure of that, but outhouses were definitely the big part of Carville. I mean, you see these early shots. There are outhouses, like, right next door. I found out when I moved to my current house that my house had been moved from the reservoir site at Holly Park to where it was, and there was a woman, this was 20 years ago, who had seen the move. She was a kid, and she it described it coming on a wagon, pulled by a mule. To, it was basically it was being braked by the mule, the mules, uh, because it was coming down a hill. And that was just information in my neighborhood from a woman who'd lived there for a long time as a kid. And the time is getting further and further away from when these existed, yeah. but... I think the best thing is humans and maybe church societies that have senior members. Yeah, no, we, if you go to uh, almost all of our members, like we're a nonprofit organization, so we have a whole membership program. Almost all of our members are these kind of people you're talking about, people who grew up in the city, are getting on in years and have these memories. And they point us to a lot of other people, people that maybe aren't on the Internet, um, who live in their neighborhood, and we interview them. Uh, if you go to outsidelands.org, you'll see just an, some examples of the interviews we do, of the sort of feedback we get, of the messages that these seniors post. And when we have an issue, like we're trying to find out about earthquake cottages or Carville, we do put out an all-points bulletin to seniors who we think might have some relation to it, might have some memory of it. And one reason we started this organization is the western neighborhoods are the newer neighborhoods of San Francisco, the creation and the development of these neighborhoods is in the living memory of a lot of people still. So we wanted to start this organization and capture those memories before those people were gone. They have this really, really neat thing. I think they're history minutes. Is that what they are? Yeah, we're doing little video, one-minute videos where we just kind of give a little history of some building or site or event. We're at Sutro Heights Park above the Cliff House in Seal Rock. This used to be uh, Adolf Sutro's estate. These weren't there then. If it's sunset in the Richmond too, guess I ain't that cool. When I was a kid, my father told me that those were machine gun nests up there, put in during World War II to fend off Japanese attackers. These are two, they're called fire control stations, and these two structures uh, uh, were built in 1943 by the U.S. Army. Actually, these were spotting positions uh, for the big coast artillery gun batteries, uh, the Fort Cronkite and Fort Berry. Pairs of these stations would work together, uh, say one here and one down at Fort Funston, 
and using big telescopes, they'd aim at a ship, a target. No enemy ever attacked. And the two different sightings allowed them to triangulate the position of the ship out of sea. So it was a lookout, essentially. It was a lookout. So, John, if we saw a Japanese ship today... It'd probably say Toyota on the side of it. Ah. They are really fun. Uh, 60 shows you what you can do in 60 seconds. Trying to find a history on Chattanooga Street, the Presidio maps. People keep forgetting that we were, the Army was a major presence, and before the city was functioning, the Army was functioning, and there are maps from the 1800s that show the farmhouses in Noe Valley and in Eureka Valley and the Mission District that were done by the Army. And so the Army is its own resource for the history of the city when, before there was a building department. They would have everything. You could find out what was the original house in an area. And again, this is the 1800s more than the 1900s, but, you know, the earthquake obliterated a lot of records. Well, there's a 1869 Coast Survey map that the government did, and that's a great resource to just kind of show where there are you know, like we saw that map showing the grid pattern. Well, they had that, like I said, on maps in 1868, but there's no streets yet. But the Coast Survey map will show you where there actually are streets put in, and they will show buildings sometimes. So, yeah, there's lots of great resources out there. Well, <laughs> that was terrific, Woody. Thanks so much. I couldn't really have enjoyed wonderful. it more. And we'll see you next month for DBI's Brown Bag Lunch Series. Thank you.